Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> my dad and my aunt walk into a bar, met Mr. Udell Watts, and bonded over brewskis and family traditions. This is a special episode, you guys. Mr. Udell Watts, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah, so I thought we could start out, this is so unusual, and kind of tell the story of how you met my dad and my aunt in a bar. I mean, that even almost sounds like a joke. Yeah, it was bizarre, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. Let's start off like that. All right. Were you sitting at the bar and like my dad and aunt walked in, or you guys were both kind of there and overheard each other's conversations? Like, tell me how you guys connected. So, you know, interestingly enough, you know, it's a, a local craft brewer that has a brew pub attached to their brewery. You know, my brother and I, who was visiting from Fort Lauderdale, had walked in just behind, you know, your father and I guess his... My aunt. Your, your aunt. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I knew that it wasn't your mother. So we walked in directly behind them. My brother peeled off and went and grabbed a table because there weren't a lot of tables in the outside area. So I was standing in line behind your father and actually kind of enjoying his banter back and forth with the, you know, with the gentleman that was walking through the beer list. I overheard him say that he had been directed there by the host at the hotel in which he was staying. He, you know, they selected their beers and then they went out to the patio area. So I stepped up and actually I knew what I wanted from hearing them go through it with your father. I actually got the same beer that he got because I enjoy you know, a nice pilsner myself. I walked out there and then when I, when I went to sit down, my brother indicated that, you know, the seating was really limited. And my brother indicated that your father actually saw the openings around him at his larger table. And your father asked, you know, do you mind if if we sit here? And he said, it's not a problem, but I'm being joined by somebody else in a moment. And so he didn't give a number, but your father, you know, must have surmised that they would be intruding on his, on my brother's party. You know, they sat down. Of course, another table was get, getting up. They sat at the table right next to where my brother was. When I came out, you know, that's what he explained. He said, hey, those guys uh, tried to sit here. I think I hurt, hurt the guy's feelings. So I, out of guilt and not wanting hard feelings, I turned and just made small talk with him. Just said, hey, hey, I'm sorry for uh, hip checking you over to the next table. Appreciate you working with us. And so uh, that started a little bit of banter back and forth for the next hour or so. And every time that... I said something, uh, your father had like a relevant connection to it, or every time your father said something, we had a relevant connection to it. It was just a strange, you know, it was almost like it was meant to be. And so 
you know, he mentioned that he was supposed to be meeting you. You were going to be giving a keynote address to a group of farmers around legacy. Well, guess what? We grew up in farm country on the Illinois-Iowa border. In fact, I grew up near the headquarters for John Deere. And so I, you know, I mentioned that. I talked about all the people I knew that were executives, you know, with John Deere or retired, whatever. And so we had so many th things in parallel. So then, you know, he started talking about, you know, your show and his involvement in it and the fact that it was around legacy. And he's like, you know, you got to check it out sometime. And so, you know, we kind of agreed that we would. And I asked, like the last thing he was getting up to pay his bill. I was like, well, what's your daughter's name? How do I find the show? He's like, oh, it's, um, you know, Reno Watts. And I'm like, come on, man. Are you kidding me? And my brother looked at me and, and, and he shook his head like, don't, don't do it. Don't say nothing. And I'm like, I got to. <laughs> so I, I, I was like, that's, that's our last name. And then your dad looked at us like, okay, what's the scam? What's this? Yeah, he literally, he looked at us like, what's going on here? And so I'm like, no, seriously. So I took out my license. My brother took out his license. We handed him over. That's our last name. And so after that, he's just, he was just laughing his way all the way to the register. He vowed to follow up. So here we are. I love that. I mean, first of all, my dad, like literally, he is telling everybody on the street, he talks to the, the mail person, you know, the grocery store, his synagogue everywhere. He's like trying to get us listeners. He's like a walking old school marketer, right? That's oh, so absolutely. Cute. Well, he, he certainly has a wonderful personality. I We enjoyed the hour that we spent together. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I was like you said, I was going to give a keynote. I got COVID like the day I was supposed to hop on a flight. And he was bringing stuff to my uncle. When I told him I couldn't get on the plane, he was already halfway there. I was like, oh no. So he decided to like crash there. I think my uncle was like playing cards or poker with his buddies. And then my aunt was like, let's go out. I'm like, okay, this is so weird. Like my dad's going out with, you know, my mom's older sister, <laughs> but amazing. I love like that you guys met so organically and then had all of that in common. And from the day that he met you until now, every day is like, when are you interviewing him? When are you interviewing him? And he felt so connected to you. I love that. Wow. So it, it was truly meant to be. Ironically, that was the place that we met is less than a mile from where I live. We've lived in this home for 12 years. That's the very first time that I had ever been there. Yeah. And his first time that he had ever been there. And I don't think I've ever been there. Wow. That's, that's yeah. like that serendipity thing. I yeah. love that. Exactly. So, you know, you sent me this whole like outline of how you could answer questions and you have been in so much press. I mean, I've never had such a prepared guest. I was like, wow, you're making my job so easy. But actually the questions that you sent what is legacy? How has this affected your family? What is it like working in a family business? That is all so relevant to the show. So I would like to actually go through some of those. What would you like to start with? Wherever you're comfortable. I am an open book. Yeah. I mean, my dad worked in a family business his whole life and it can be challenging, right? You said that there's a lot of ups and downs. What does carrying on your family name mean to you? The whole, it's not a choice. It's a calling. The whole idea around, you use the words, your family name. And one of the things that my, my grandfather taught me at a very young age was at the end of the day, the only thing that you really have of value is your name. And your name hinges upon the way that people perceive you. They either believe in you, they trust you, or they don't. And, mm. you know, the, the commitments that you make, whether you keep them, the actions that you take, whether whether they are 
fair and honest. That's the type of thing that people remember you for. They remember you for your work ethic. And those are the lessons that I try to impart upon my children, you know, as I guide them into this world today, because those lessons stuck with me and they are my guiding principles in the way that I have gone about my, my day job, which, you know, we could talk about in a little bit. They're my, certainly my guiding principles as I try to pull along Arthur's legacy. And I will tell his story, you know, momentarily, but at the end of the day, it's all, it's about keeping your word to the best of your ability and putting everything that you have into it, doing what's right versus what's easy. Mm, Yes. And that can be hard sometimes, right? It can be. It it genuinely can be, but it puts you in a position where you have to make choices. There are things that we can do. There are things that we're just going to have to wait. Sometimes it's because you don't have the resource. Sometimes it's because you know you're not yet prepared. And to put yourself out there right now, it'll be a half measure. And that's kind of how we've been with Old Arthur's. You know, we've actually been slowly introducing and growing this brand for 14 years. Yet just in the last three or four years, have we really emerged publicly? Why? Because I didn't feel like we had a foundation to protect and grow the brand. When I say protected, I mean create a brand that's based on authenticity, create a brand that's based on quality, and then also create a brand that we owned, like truly owned the story behind. The time that we hit publicly, I felt confident that we could protect the brand. And when I say protect it, it's from larger commercial interests that might be better resourced, that might be able to quickly see what we're doing, pivot and create a fictional brand that leverages the ideas that are our reality and then run out ahead of us. I have been deathly afraid of someone usurping our true brand story and then creating an Aunt Jemima's or creating an Uncle Ben's, you know, with this. And that's not who we are. We are old Arthurs. There's a real person behind and a real life and a real legacy behind our brand. Ooh, that's a great transition. Let's talk about the real person behind the brand. Arthur was my great, great grandfather, two greats for me. So oftentimes I have my son with me. It would be three greats for him. Arthur was my great, great grandfather. The man was born in 1837, which means because of where he was born, he was born into slavery, Kansas City, Missouri. So for the first 28 years of his life, he was a slave and his daily task always revolved around open pit barbecuing. So as a child, five, six, seven years of age, he is required to make sure that the cooking fires always had wood available. There were three fires. There was an indoor stone hearth, there was an outdoor stone hearth, and then there was an open pit. There was a uh, big commercial farm and they were roasting meats over open pit that they, I guess they sold locally. And so by the time he was in his teens, he was directly responsible for roasting meats over open pit. That was his job until he was uh, freed at the end of the Civil War at the age of 28 through the Emancipation Proclamation. So when he was set free, the only thing of value that he had to take with him out of bondage 
were his recipes. He left Kansas City on foot, wound up in central Illinois, quickly put those recipes to work in order to earn a living. In doing so, he actually carved out a name for himself as the go-to pit master in central Illinois. If you're having a city festival, a county fair, what have you, you sent for Arthur, you brought him to town, and he made the event go off the way that you needed it to. In fact, I have newspaper articles that go back as far as 19 1916, 1916. He's in his, I don't know, 70s by then, but he's still doing his thing. He was actually hitting mid-stride at that point. But I have a newspaper article that goes back to 1916, in which he fed 11,000 people on a Saturday afternoon. I've got another article in which he fed 30,000 people over a three-day, was a uh, Labor Day weekend. You know, he was doing really big events, very public, very successfully. He lived to be 108. So for 80 years as a free man, this is what, you know, kept a roof over his head, allowed him to raise a family, allowed him to buy property. You know, he was one of America's earliest identifiable pitmasters. There have always been pitmasters. This is one in which we have photographic evidence. I actually have a lot of his tools that he used including the pitchforks that he turned meat with over open pit. So, wow. I mean, okay. So I would like you two to describe, like when you say it's a calling, what does that mean to you? If you think about Ma Malcolm Gladwell, his book outliers, it's the thing that makes somebody a subject matter expert or an expert at what they do above and beyond everyone else that does that thing is an additional 10,000 hours worth of time. Mm. And that's what Arthur invested into his craft, you know, from the very beginning. It was his job all day, every day as a slave. And then it became his passion because of the notoriety that it brought him as a free man. He enjoyed, he enjoyed his celebrity as a free man with this. It wasn't just a job for him. And he never stopped tinkering with his recipes. He never stopped tinkering with his skill. He was intensely passionate about guarding his recipes and guarding his skill, but he taught his family. He taught his children. And so it's something that it's a labor of love that we have in every generation passed down from father to son and father to daughter, you know, from generationally. And so when I say it's a calling, it's, it's a skill set and knowledge bank developed first by Arthur and has, has slowly been transferred down through our family generation to generation. That's not the kind of thing that it's like a family photo album. You can't afford to lose it. I love too that he got 80 years to get that celebrity status. That's yeah. a whole life to some people. It, it really is. It really is. We, for some reason particularly men in our family tend to live to be, you know, 100, 100 or better. His brother made it to 104. His son, I believe, made it to 102. So it's it's just one of those things. It's an anomaly in our family. Unfortunately, you know, if you see my father, people have seen us together and, and mistook us for brothers, which actually doesn't speak well to how I'm aging, I guess. <laughs> Aw, hey, it must be something in the sauce, right? I'd like to think that. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, tell me a little bit too about, you know, starting small and, and local and expanding regionally and how you've had to balance the brand and a day job. Sure. And that's probably the, the hardest part right there is balancing the brand and balancing my day job. I have my, the entirety of my adult life, I've worked in pharma. I work for Johnson & Johnson. You know, it's one of the biggest 
healthcare organizations on the planet. I have a fairly significant responsibility in my job for them as a uh, business director in their cardiovascular medicines unit, um, responsible for, you know, their profitability for their sales in, you know, for a seven state area for uh, their cardiovascular medicine. So I cannot afford to take my eye off of my responsibility to them because my responsibility is not just to them, it's to all the employees in this area as well. So again, going back to at the end of the day, the only thing that I have is my name. <laughs> I need these 100 employees to be able to trust me. I need them to be able to count on me. The 100 plus, I should say, to be able to rely on the idea that I'm giving them my absolute best. And I do. But at the same time, that means that Old Arthur's is relegated to uh, early morning, <laughs> evenings, and weekends. So it's slow. It, you know, it's slowed down our progress in terms of growing as a brand, but that's okay because it's allowed me to bring my, you know, my teenage and college age children into the fold and assign them responsibility that maybe they wouldn't have had an outside company or elsewhere. And it, really I'm building this for them and for their children someday. And so them getting in at the ground floor, it's important that they know how everything works, that they can do those things themselves because I'm not there during the day to make it happen. And so again, you, the original part of your question was talk to me about being a small brand. Anybody can take that family recipe and for a few thousand dollars, it might, you know, all in less than $10,000, you can get it in a bottle or get it in a box and get a label on it. But after that, you better know where you're going to sell it because the clock is ticking before it expires. Otherwise, it's just it's money down the drain. So, you know, finding a co-packer, FDA licensed manufacturer that will translate your home recipe into a commercial recipe. Step one. Step How two. How do you do that? Uh, they're called co-packers. You can Google it. Google the word co-packer, C-O-P-A-C-K-E-R, and it'll pull up co-packers, you know, around you regionally that you can then begin to, you know, inquire. I've got a family pasta sauce recipe. I'd like to, I'd like to commercialize it. Are you interested in helping me exercise that recipe? And they'll tell you it costs, it costs to do that. And then your first order is going to cost creating a label to put on your bottle or your box is going to cost. And those are the, uh, you know, the in initial expenses. But then again, you need to then begin hustling to figure out where you're going to sell it. So my father, who the majority of his adult life owned a trucking company, he had retired, he had sold his business and he had free time. And so when we get, first got started, this was his way of staying engaged and you know out like he was accustomed to being so he he put a lot of time and effort into developing re, uh, grocery retail customers that he had yeah, access to in, in his area that he lived which was on the Illinois Iowa border and so he had enough customers like out of the gate that he was able to turn over his inventory wasn't really making a lot of money but it kept the brand alive it wasn't losing money either and it you know it made enough so that he was able to continue to invest make it a little bit bigger treat you know purchase a little bit of advertising and kind of pull itself forward and so that was really the, almost the first almost the first four years, I'm sorry, the first 10 years, the mm -hmm. last four years has really come from us realizing that 
you know, this thing has survived and it's actually creating, you know, kind of, it's got a buzz around it. People that like it, love it. People that hear the story are clamoring to try it. Let's see what we can do to push the envelope here. And when we started, you know, pouring a little bit of gas on the fire, all of a sudden it just started to accelerate. So. Ooh, tell me about the acceleration. We've been picked up by, our, our story was picked up by Food & Wine Magazine. Food & Wine Magazine, one of their writers got a gift pack and turned around and wrote a really nice article. You can Google Food & Wine, Old Arthur's, it'll come up. Put it in the show notes. <laughs> fantastic. They literally called us at that time, one of the best barbecue sauces in America. And, you know, we were still pretty small at the time. You know, we just starting to kind of publicly do demos and things like that. And shortly after that, I was doing a public demo and this guy was walking by and I, you know, my, my hook to get people to come and stop by our booth is, Hey, are you a barbecue fan? I'll, I'll just throw that out there. And uh, the guy kind of stopped and looked at me. He's like, am I? And so he stepped up to the booth and uh, he's like, you know, what do you have? And so I gave him a sample and he tasted it. Same time he's tasted it, I'm rattling on the story of old Arthur and our origin. You know, he put the little cup, the sample cup down and he's like, and he pulled out his phone, he scrolls through it, he shows me a picture and it's a table with probably 200 little barbecue sauce sample cups on it. I just happened to, just happened to stop the guy that was one of the handful of judges for the Illinois State Barbecue Association's barbecue sauce judging competition. You know, he's a KCBBS, Kansas City Barbecue Society trained judge, and he was responsible for judging the best barbecue sauces in the state for this the previous year. And, you know, he put the sample down and he's like, you know, we just finished this competition. You would have won. Oh my God. This, this would have won. I knew he liked it, but I thought he was kind of blowing smoke. <laughs> and um, so I kind of filed that away. I was feeling good for the day, whatever. Well, a year later, we entered into the National Barbecue and Grilling Association, which is pretty much the biggest governing body for all things barbecue, professional barbecue. We entered into their our products into their barbecue sauce competition just because we want to see how we fare against the who's who in barbecue right now. Yeah, I entered, but then about five months, four months went by and I kind of forgot about it. Well, one day I'm sitting, I got a phone call and it's NBBQA, the, the organization, and they were calling to see if we were coming to the annual meeting. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry. We really didn't have plans to travel to Texas to go to the, to the annual convention. And she's like, well, you know, the convention is one thing, but the last day of the meeting is our award show. We have a feeling you're going to want to be here for that. So yeah, you're <laughs> I, like, scrambled, okay. I scrambled and, uh, you know, we get, you know, we booked travel and we, uh, we made it down and lo and behold, we were named the best tomato-based barbecue sauce in America. Yeah. You know, so when you talk about legacy if, uh, for 2022, for this year, it happened in April. And when you talk about legacy, I can only think of the thousands of hours worth of time and effort that Arthur put into creating and then refining this barbecue sauce over his lifetime. He had an accident at 108 that took his life. He didn't die of natural causes. He had an accident. Up until that time, he was still in demand as a pit master. 
And so he never stopped tweaking his recipe. We have his, his recipe by virtue of his children's handwriting. He was a slave. He was not literate. He couldn't read or write, but that didn't mean he couldn't, you know, do what it took to develop and continually tinker and refine the set of recipes. And so that's what we have. We have the fruit of his labor. That is incredible. And I also saw that you contribute to a literacy association. So because of how we got our hands on his actual recipes, you know, like I said, Arthur was not literate. He could not read. He could not write. But he, where he wound up here in Illinois, he got married. He had children. He was able to send his kids to school. We have all of his recipes by virtue of his children's handwriting. And as a thank you, or almost like a acknowledgement of our gratitude that his children did have, you know, an education. We have created a couple of different initiatives, created them from scratch to advance children's literacy. So a portion of our proceeds goes to two different things. One, we've got uh, back out in our home turf of the Quad Cities. You know, my father maintains a series of antique wheelbarrows spread around different businesses around the community in which he, anytime he gets a chance, he'll go to yard sales or whatever, he'll buy children's books and he'll just leave them in these different wheelbarrows so that if, you know, a kid going to a restaurant, you know, it's a local restaurant, kid going to a restaurant can stop by the wheelbarrow, take a book and it's theirs. They don't have to return it, just take a book with you, but it's just to spur children's literacy. So there are half a dozen of the wheelbarrows, you know, spread around you know, the community in which kids can go and grab a book just to, to take with them to read. The other thing is when we first got up and running 12, 13 years ago now, we established a charitable grant at our public library. And every year, you know, we host a couple of different fundraisers. And then we also peel off a little bit of the meager amount that we're making with, you know, the products and have continued to contribute to that grant and the grant itself is earmarked for materials that relate to children's literacy. So it's not just books, but it's paper, crayons, painting materials, like, you know, whatever, but towards children's materials. And that grant is actually now grown to be, uh, my understanding is we are the second largest grant at the library behind the grant that is was put in place by the family behind John Beer. Now we are nowhere near the, the size of their Wow. Grant. We'll never catch them. <laughs> Not in this lifetime, but we're proud of what we have put in place for sure. And as actually as a result of not only like this generation's commitment, you know, this commitment, my grandmother was on the board of directors for that same library at a time where she had to fight to be on the board of directors because of the color of her skin. And as a result of her commitment lifelong to the library and this generation of our family's commitment to the library, they actually just dedicated the new, newly opened second library in town, the smaller library, the Watts Family Library. Really? Yeah, just, you know, we're pretty proud of that. But it's it's really not just old Arthur's, it's the overall family commitment to children's literacy in the community. That is so beautiful. Wow, you have so much legacy, not just the sauce, but... The the whole concept is something that 
we try really, really hard to live into, but then to actually make sure that it's instilled, instilled in each and every one of us in the way that we operate. How do you do that? I mean, there are so many family businesses and children choose to do their own thing, but I see your excitement. I mean, yeah. I feel like everybody would want to hop in, you know? You know, my kids might still choose to do their own thing. That's okay. If they decide that they don't want to do this, like I, I never, my father owned a business. I always worked for him growing up, but I had no intention of actually working for his business as an adult. His brother owns a really significant business. I've never had an intention of working in that part of the family business. Although I, as a kid, I always, you know, summers and, you know, time off, I worked for one of them. I had no free time. I always worked. <laughs> And so I don't, I'm building a business. I know that I have three kids. I know that one or two of them will probably be in, uh, interested in being involved. At least one of them is going to want to uh, explore and do something on their own. What I'm trying to do is instill a set of values around giving back to community, around a, a set of morals and ethics in the way that we, you deal with people, relate to people and treat people that you're either going to apply inside of what we're doing, or you're going to take it with you and apply it to the thing that you choose to do. But at the end of the day, my job is to make sure that you are a decent human being. That's really beautiful. I have kind of a controversial question. Why is the slavery piece like important in the story and how like, have you thought about that? How does that affect you? That's such a loaded question. There are so many different directions I could take the answer. It's, it's important because Arthur didn't choose barbecue. He was told, this is your job and you will do it. So remember, he was, my dad was almost six years old when Arthur died. He remembers sitting on his lap. He remembers talking to him. He remembers Arthur telling him, if you ask, well, you know, I never got any instruction. Um, I just, they gave me a job and I, I had to do it. I had to do it the best I could. I had to do it right where I got in trouble. And, wow. and nobody ever taught him, you know, like recipes. They gave him some really basic instructions on when he needs to like turn meat over and things like that. He had to learn on his own. So the other piece of it is knowing, oh, Arthur got kicked in the head as a by a horse when he was five years old it laid him out it they thought it killed him oh my uh, God. Horse, horse had just been shod and it wasn't used to the new shoes he was bringing it because his master <laughs> was getting ready to go into town so he got sent to go get the horse horse had just been shod new horse shoes was a little ungainly and the horse caught his hoof on the threshold of the of the barn door and it kicked out because it's lost, lost footing. Put him in the back of the head. They immediately thought he was dead, but then they, did, they discovered that he was still breathing. So here's the slavery piece. Station in life. Who did they call? Who would you call if that happened to a child? The ambulance? Well, it's 1800s. <laughs> There's no ambulance in the A doctor? Okay, so <laughs> you would call a doctor. They called the vet. Station in life. They called the vet. It's station in life, Rena. And so, again, you ask, why is the slavery piece important? Because of all that he overcame. So the vet came, you know, cleaned the wound, removed the portion of skull that was actually uh, crushed, and realized that he had a, a very small open hole that went all the way, you know, through his skull. Oh so what did he God. do? He took a silver dollar, he heated it in the fire, cooled it with alcohol, put a medicinal salve around the edge, slapped it in place and tied a rag around it and basically explained to Arthur's people, uh, if he's going to live, 
The only way he's going to make it is if you saw what I did in terms of cleaning that area, putting medicinal salve around you know, the edge of that coin, and then tying a clean, clean rag. You need to do that four or five times a day, clean rag every time. And guess what? Over time, the skin actually began to occlude back over that silver dollar. I don't know how many years that takes, but my dad recalls sitting on Arthur's lap and Arthur would tell you about some of the, some of the things he'd seen in life, some of the hard times, some of the good times. And he, but, and he would always finish the stories with, you know what, Arthur's, Arthur's seen some times, but good or bad, I'm, old Arthur never died broke. And if you asked him why he'd lean forward and he would show you where he had this little piece of silver dollar that was still visible through the skin that had grown back in place. His daily ritual, like multiple times a day in his idle time, he'd be sitting there with a clean cloth and, and rubbing alcohol, and he would literally be cleaning that area, just keeping it, keeping it clean. Again, why is the slavery piece so important? Because of the incredibly, almost insurmountable obstacles that Arthur had in life as a slave, post-slavery, just trying to fit in and, and trying to make his way in the world. So for us, producing Old Arthur's Barbecue Sauce keeps his story alive and helps us share the richness of the life that he created out of the hardness, hardship in which his life began. That is a powerful story. Wow. I love that. Also talk to me about your proud moment of carrying this on to your son, your oldest son. <laughs> sure. You know, it, it's uh, interestingly, so I have a 21 year old son. You know, he is as invested in this as I am. You know, he is my right hand. He's my father's right hand. You know, we are doing everything we can, the three of us, you know, to pull old Arthur's forward. And neither one of us could do it without, you know, him. And so when we went down to the NBBQA, the awards ceremony, and they were ticking down, you know, third place, they didn't call our name. Second place, they didn't call our name. We kind of looked at each other and then they called first place and they called our name. And, you know, he threw his hands up and then, but he turned and waited for me uh, to, to get up and go on stage and get it. And I'm like, no, just, just go. You go get Aww. it. And so I actually, you know, he actually hustled up, you know, took all the photos and everything else. And for me, it was important that because it's, it's cements his place as part of the legacy to go up and accept Arthur's award. He is, he is the sixth generation in our family to be Ooh. involved in Arthur's recipes. So, you know, he got to mingle with like the who's who of, you know, professional barbecue. It was a really touching moment, but the real proud moment was the, ne the next morning, the last day of the conference, we went down to, you know, the big giant breakfast, you know, and you saw like folks kind of turned and before it was like, you no, know, nobody paid you any notice. You were, you were just one of the thousand people there. And now all of a sudden people kind of, hey, this, those are the guys that were, they, they went first. They were, you could see people kind of pointing. And so there was, when we sat down, with our plates to eat breakfast real quick, somebody walked up and asked my son for an autograph. And he looked at me and, you know, he's, he's like, dad, what do I do? I'm like, sign your name. <laughs> and so I actually have a photo of him signing his very first autograph. And, you know, and I explained to him because he was bewildered. I, he just never expected it, but he, he was bewildered by the fact that someone would ask. And he's like, he's like, Oh, that was that was surreal, and I and I said, well, you know what? That's that is people appreciating the story of legacy that we're trying 
to tell. And so it was like, for me, it was a really touching moment to see him be the face of Arthur, the voice of Arthur, and now the hand of Arthur, who was not literate. Does that give you purpose? Yeah, that's that's why I'm doing this. That is why I'm doing it, because I need the world to know Arthur's story, but I also need my children to understand where they fit in his legacy. And it really does give me purpose. That is why I'm building this. I've had a really hearty career in pharma. I've done, I've done a lot of really neat things, things that I can point to as being industry first, but what we're doing here with Old Arthur is so much more meaningful and mm. for our family, so much more lasting. So here we go. Wow. I almost feel like everybody needs to like have something that they carry on in their family. I think everybody has something. It's a matter of taking notice and taking interest. One thing that I always encourage just about anybody that I talk to about family and legacy is like, we all have phones or we all have iPads and phones that have voice and video recorders on them. You know, if you're a fifth grader, sixth grader, seventh grader, next time you're talking to grandma, grandpa, turn the recorder on, throw it in the middle of the table, let them know you're doing it, but just ask them questions about themselves growing up. Ask them about their life. Ask them about things that, you know, that they've experienced. Ask them about like their first television. Ask them about their first car. Just interview them. Because the historical value of just their comments, even if it's just inside of your family, are just unbelievable. That's the kind of thing that two or three generations from now, you've got them on tape. They're, they're not just a picture in a book, if you're lucky to have that. They're, they're actually a voice that's actually video, you know, what have you. So whenever I travel, if I travel to see, it might be work-related, whatever, but if I have elderly family members in a given geography, I take my personal laptop and I take a really high quality flatbed scanner with me because I always build a half a day or more in, in order to go and sit down and go through photo albums and scan pictures and then capture notes on the pictures that I've scanned just so that we're recording like all of this history. You're like a documentarian. I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm curious. I, I like to know the story behind things. I like to know the why behind like my personality, the why behind my wife's personality. And by, by understanding the people that they have been influenced by and been around, you get to a fuller picture of why we are who we are. You know, my grandma said, how can you know someone unless you know where they come from? Exactly. So. My dad put just these little earbuds on her and, and I interviewed her and now she can't even tell those stories, you know, and that's, that's yeah. why it's, it's so important to do. And even in this podcast, the reason I wanted to put it together is so that my kids can know my dad when he's still young and hip and able to answer all of these questions and have conversations about all of these topics that I'm covering. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that I try to tell people. There's going to be a time where you've got access to them now. There's going to be a time when you don't and you wish you did. Have and you interviewed your parents? I have. Actually, I've got plenty of video and audio of both of my parents. My mother is recently, actually, just a little over a year deceased, but wonderful life, wonderful relationship with all of her kids. And so yeah, I'm fortunate that we have the footage over the years that we do. And even like my father, especially if, if, if I can get him talking barbecue, he's my dad, so I'm not going to get in trouble. I'll throw the, like the audio recorder in the middle of the table without him realizing it because he's giving me wisdom 
sometimes that he doesn't realize that he hasn't shared with me yet because he's remembering something that his dad shared with him, or he's remembering something that his grandfather shared with him from a skills or a recipe point of view. And I'm sometimes I'll think, you know, dad, you know, we've cooked pork shoulders together 200 times and you never told me that I should be doing that before. And so every time that I get a chance to, to talk technique with him, I always pick up an additional pearl of wisdom, even though we probably have a thousand hours worth of time together cooking. I'm still learning from him. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. It is. I, I, I accuse him of holding out, but you know, I do the same thing with my son. You can't give somebody everything at one time. What have you learned from your son or from your kids? Patience. Patience and that everybody has a different way of absorbing a lesson or information. And you can't make somebody be passionate about something. Like the, the things that are really important to me that I really care about oftentimes are not the priority for your kids. You can't force it to be. Otherwise, it turns into a, you know, the thing that I said, I don't know, 40 minutes ago, which was don't do what's easy, do what's right. If you force it on somebody, they're going to take shortcuts. And so if it's not important to them, especially around like these recipes and, you know, projecting our brand image when we're doing things, if it's not important to one of my kids, the last thing I want them to be is upset with me because I made them do something. I'll go, I got three kids. I'll go find somebody else that's interested in doing it. That way they're actually excited about the thing that we're trying to accomplish or trying to do. I can give that one a different ass assignment that is more in like, or, you know, in keeping with their personality or what it is that they're interested in doing. There's, there's plenty to do, trust me. Have they given you any creative direction? Have they helped you come up with any tweaks? Plenty, actually, because I'm a dinosaur when it comes to like what we're doing here. Social this media, about, yeah. Yeah, social media. This is about the extent of my digital ability. So I actually have two, two of my three, my, both of my boys are heavily involved in producing our social media content. So I've got one that does, you know, video production and he's in the kitchen, he's in the backyard, he's shooting video, he's cooking and you know, creating loops and reels and all this other stuff that I just don't have the time to do. And then I've got a, another one that's forever throwing out like a, hey, dad, have you thought, it's my youngest. Hey, dad, have you thought about my, yeah, I've kind of thought about it, but I, I need another set of hands. I need help. Can you help me do it? And then he'll dive right in. So I mean, even my daughter is doing a presentation for, for school last night and she's like animating her slides and dropping in music and changing colors. I'm like, wait, how'd you figure out how to do that? You know? Yeah, they're, they're, they're just connected you know, in a way that we haven't had time to learn to be, I think is the, and it's not that we're not capable. It's, it's just that we're, we haven't kept up with the, you know, the rapid advancement. So but I, I love that they can contribute in their own way. And you're like, okay, if that's not what you want to do, I'll hire somebody for that piece. <laughs> exactly. The, the thing that I, that I make sure that they do though is, and I did this from the earliest of ages, like know what you're cooking with. We've got six different dry rubs. We have a uh, literally a dry rub for just about anything that you are interested in. The thing that I make them do is understand what it tastes like, understand what each of the ingredients in the recipe tastes like, so that the thing that you do use it on tastes the way that you want it to taste, as opposed to you know giving somebody instruction and then it winds up tasting funny 
or it tastes like kind of nutty. Don't just throw out a recipe that's untested, that's unpalatable. Put the effort into actually creating something that you would eat. Did you ever consider going to culinary school? No, funny you should ask. So when my father sold his business and retired, he went back to school, he got a master's degree. Then he got another master's degree. And then he got a culinary degree. And that was the point at which it became actually hard for he and I to cook in the kitchen together because he's always looking over my shoulder and critiquing the way that I cut onions or whatever. And I'm like, just and back off, back, back away. And that's when I realized that, you know, I need to lighten up with my kids too. I love cooking. I thoroughly enjoy cooking, not just barbecue, but cooking to the point where for years, for probably almost two decades, I've been the one that pretty much produces Thanksgiving dinner for the family. That's for, awesome. For the extended family. I enjoy it enough that I don't necessarily want to be corrected in technique because I know that my output is as good as anybody's. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about how we can find your kids and all of your products and promote away. Old Arthur's Barbecue Sauce. Our web address is www.oldarthurs.com. You can find our history. You can find a wealth of photos featuring Every generation of us going back to Arthur, just our whole story is there and all of our products are there as well. We have a Instagram you know, presence that we try to be you know, pretty active with a couple of posts a week. We also have a Facebook presence that mirrors our Insta- Instagram presence. You can just look for Old Arthur's on either one of those and you'll find us. We do have a Twitter account as well. We're not very active with it. We just, we're not an informational type of brand where we're throwing out messaging. So it doesn't, Twitter doesn't really do much for us. It's it's kind of keeping, keeping up with current events more than anything else. You can also find us on Amazon. Our products are now on Amazon. Cool. And that's been a a learning experience for us. It's it's good, but there certainly is a a learning curve into putting your best foot forward there. Any tips? Patience and perseverance (laughs) because it's, there's not a lot of help. There's no live body that you can call to get your admit the administrative side of what you're doing right. So it's a lot of trial and error, a lot of email messages saying, nope, try again, nope, try again. So, you know, once you do figure out how to get yourself, get your, essentially your store set up, your product set up on Amazon, it it operates like a well-oiled machine, but getting set up with your brand is not intuitive. Yeah, I've noticed that because my daughter wrote a book through the pandemic and self-published and there's Mm. like no communication. And yeah, you just have to keep submitting and, you know, going through the steps until it gets accepted. What I learned along the way is you need to find somebody small like you that may have already done it and successfully that can help you. When we put our first order in, you know, I put together a full pallet load of our product that was going into the warehouse, set up a, uh, like our, for our first pickup, really reasonable rate to have Amazon come and pick up that pallet load and take it to their warehouse. The pickup window is the entirety of a day. And there's, there's no phone number or anything. They just say, okay, we'll pick it up between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. So I set myself up, you know, at our warehouse location to just work on the computer and do administrative stuff, but they never showed I oh, went no. home. Yeah, I went home at about six thirty, and then I at uh, like the next morning, I got an email uh, accusing me of not showing up for the pickup, 
And, but there's nobody saying, no, I was there the whole day. Basically they said, we took the liberty of rescheduling you a week from today. So again, we, we do the same thing. And I went same song and dance. I was there from 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 at night. They didn't show up. I went no. home at about like seven o'clock that evening. I get a phone call from, it's a shared warehouse space. And there happened to be somebody else there. I got a phone call saying, hey, there's a Amazon driver here to pick up a load for you. What do I do? And so they, I mean, they got there, but it was after hours and you realize they're doing the same thing to the trucking company that they're doing to us. They're, they're overloading them or, or over scheduling them. And so he, they did show up. They did get my product on the truck. And a couple of weeks later, it appears in inventory. But I look at the fact that, you know, I lost a week and there was nobody live to call. All I could do was send an email or two and somebody might or might not have read them. I just know that it's really impersonal. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? Anything Absolutely. you didn't get to ask him at the bar? Absolutely. You know, it's it's funny. The question that you asked me about like my, my proudest moment with, with old Arthur's and with my son, I have three kids and my passion to make them foodies over the course of their life, to cook in the kitchen one-on-one with each one of them. You know, at the earliest of ages, anything that we cooked with, if I was pulling a spice out of the cabinet, I would ask them to take a pinch and taste it. I need them to know what, you know, marjoram or turmeric or, you know, whatever. I need you to know what it tastes like so that you know, in combination with other things, you can predict what the end result's going to be. And so each one of my kids, you know, there's been a special moment in the kitchen with each and every one of them, either teaching them a technique or teaching them a recipe. You know, with my daughter, who is now 18, when she was about 11 years old, for her, it was getting her to a point where she could make gravy from scratch. I just remember being proud of her when we were cooking. My mother was was here that day and my mother said, you know, we, we really need some gravy with this meal, like roast chicken or something like that. We really need gravy to go along with these potatoes. And my daughter piped up. She's like, I can make it. Do we have drippings or will you, do you want me to use bouillon? And so I was like, my mom kind of looked at her like, wow. She said, you can make gravy? And she did. She banged it out. You know, same, same way with my youngest, my youngest son, he takes pride in his, at this point in life, his air fryer creations with our dry rubs. So keep an eye out for Christian Watts. Uh, he's planning a TikTok series coming up shortly between the air fryer and the Instapot, just using our dry rubs and our sauces. That's so, cool that you get him some good tools. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, <laughs> I guess if, if their philosophy, if it's uh, yours is mine, mine is mine. So here we go. So my question, with all that being said, for your father, you know, he talked about his love of food, his love of travel. Does he have a particular moment shared with you in the kitchen that is uh, like one of his fondest memories? So I realize I'm not I have to give you him. a little teaser, but something that came to mind for me, and this will make him laugh, but the one thing that my dad cooks is like matzo brai. I, you probably haven't even heard of it, but it's like matzo French toast. <laughs> my kids love it too, but like you dip the matzo in egg, you know, and you yeah. cook it, you fry it up, like, but you break it. And I love that from a lot of my different relatives. I had this Aunt Ethel in Israel that made it so good. She soaked it a lot longer, so it was like more eggy. Yeah. But there's like different recipes of that. And, you know, some mm. people put cinnamon in it. 
you're like, I don't know if I would eat that, but yeah, that's actually like something that I remember that my dad actually makes that I like, but my dad's not a big cooker. <laughs> well, you know what? So it'll be interesting to see if he uh, offers that up as like a shared moment between the two of you. That's sweet. I actually love that you brought up that memory for, for me. Nobody else has brought that memory up. So that's really special. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it thoroughly and look forward to speaking with you again sometime. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Well, this is finally a beautiful show with Udell Watts, and it's just a magnificent, great story. It fits our show perfectly because we're trying to really reach out and show that it's not just about our generation or just about us, but that we live on and can pass on the traditions and the values of our family and do the right things and make the right choices and set the right examples for future generations that certain things can be carried on for hundreds of years, thousands of years, or even longer. In my opinion, that's the God's experiment with human beings to see if we can rise to that level. And that could be one of the reasons why we're created is to see if we can take this journey and this experiment that he made to see if we can evolve and be able to pass on his laws his righteousness, his wisdom can become humanized as well. It's quite a challenge, wouldn't you say? Oh my God, that's an understatement. <laughs> what I found with his last question, you know, because I didn't really have you all in the kitchen much, but you're right, all the taste of my matzo bry, you know, with my concoction with the eggs and the, the milk and dipping them separately and frying them. And everybody enjoyed it with the jellies and things like that and syrup. And of course, I can do sunny side, flip a good couple of eggs over, you know. But what was interesting that came to my mind was I was able to take all my daughters to a chess tournament, win a championship, and show what it took to win. And with them going with me, it just, you know, gives you that extra surge of energy and concentration where you really want to perform well. I think instilling that in your children where you show how hard it is to work at something and to compete on a high level and show that you can win is another very good trait to pass on to your children. Fortunately, I was able to win three tournaments against some very tough competition with all my daughters taking a separate trip. And even the trip that I took to North Carolina with Jessica and Stephanie in the very beginning, I had just won a tournament and ended up getting a draw in the last round where I thought I was going to tie for third place. And then this other guy ended up winning. I got knocked out of the top three but I went undefeated. I just had three wins and two draws. If I would have known that uh, that was going to happen, obviously I would have fought for the, for the win in the last round and could have been tied for another championship. But what's very interesting is that part of one's legacy and listening to your parents and your grandparents and listening to other people and being able to capture those stories came out in this episode. Otherwise, certain things can be lost. Isn't it nice to see a picture but to hear the story out of their own words and to hear their wisdom and ideas and to be able to pass that on with the new technology of today, it's just a, a golden opportunity to also get a little smarter and a little wiser and to be able to pass that on rather than just word to mouth. And what's interesting is that in the Watts family, they had a gentleman that is self-taught the opportunity of the job that they gave him, even as a slave, trying to be the best that he could be. And his whole life, trying to improve his recipes and to really perform where he became a, a master chef and a master cook. 
put him on that open pit and for a barbecue, nobody could touch him. It's quite ironic that that picture, that he's, a newspaper article of 1916, where my cousin Todd sent a picture of the whole family united of my grandfather taking a picture with his whole family and all his sisters and brothers and mom and dad. We have a picture now from 1915, which is just one year earlier, where my grandfather was 28 at that time when all the family was in that picture. When Arthur started his freedom ride, he was also 28 and was able to live another whole lifetime, 80 years. And he had to even overcome where he could have actually died at five years old, not even treated by a regular doctor, but a veterinarian that still went out of his way to save that child is also an incredible story in itself. But to be able to pass on and make sure that his children were able to write things down and be able to tell his story that the Watts's have also dedicated their lives to helping children be able to read and learn is also part of author's legacy, not just the recipe and the barbecue sauce and overcoming slavery and overcoming the adversities that he's had to face, but he also wanted to be able to pass on a better life to his children, to his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and pass on a family legacy. And also that legacy included learning how to read and write and to learn and to pass knowledge on to future generations and to your community. It's what it's really all about. The Watts family, kudos to you guys. And you know what's ironic is that I met out of all places in a brewery of special beers with your Aunt Sharon. And I could feel when I was talking to him, I could feel his energy. He could feel my energy. There's like a a light went off with the both of us where there was an immediate connection. I feel like after talking to him for an hour, like he was my brother, even though his brother was sitting right across the way from him. I felt so connected. And this is only meeting someone for an hour that somebody with the same ideals and, and believing in legacy and believing in family and believing in community was such a special moment to meet somebody that has similar or all the same values it was, in its own way, was very intoxicating, more than the beer. I really had a beautiful time with him then, and I just love the episode. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 